Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, the first four minutes of audio from Saturday morning's School of Ministry recording are missing. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Okay, well, not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. All right, well, that's, you know, it stinks, but, but fine. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak. Uh, so, so Paul is saying, none of you can boast because God hasn't, it's not that God looked through the corridor of time and saw such nobility in you that God's like, I got to have this guy on my team. Um, that's not the case at all. That's how we think, right? I, I can remember growing up and you'd look at some famous person and, and somebody be like, oh, what if that, what if that person became a Christian? Oh, what an impact they could have. No, that's not how this works. That's not how God works. Uh, that's how, how we think. And so our salvation is all of grace. It is not because of something in us that, that deserves it. God's election is based solely on his grace. He must choose based on grace alone. If, if there is any other criteria, then it stops being grace. Grace means you don't deserve it. Grace means you didn't earn it. So we, we see that connection in Romans 11, verses 5 through 8. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Uh, and so Paul, Paul's saying that, that um, for grace to be grace, it has to be unearned. It has to be undeserved. Uh, otherwise, it's just a paycheck. Uh, and so none of us would work a week and then our boss gives us the check at the end of the week and we're like, the kindness you're showing me in this moment the unmerited grace. No, what will we do? Every dollar better be here. I earned this. That's, that's Paul's point. Though God elects those who will believe, the elect still must believe. What's the connection between election and human believing? In other words, which one comes first? What's the order between election and belief? Somebody read for us Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 48. And be listening as they read. Who, who is it that believes and why do they believe? 44 through 48? Yeah. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews say, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Okay, so who believed? As many as were appointed. 
Right, okay. The Gentiles, and why did they believe? Because as many as were appointed to eternal life uh, believed. Uh, and so, election comes first, before belief. As many as were appointed to eternal life, they are the ones who believed. Uh, and so, we, uh, open up to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Gospel of John chapter 6. And we'll see this, this truth again using different words. Jesus repeatedly stresses the Father's prior action. The Father's giving. The Father's drawing. And that being the thing that causes someone to come to Jesus. So in John chapter 6, uh, looking in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on that last day. There we see the whole picture, don't we? We see the whole thing. The Father gives. Those who are given come. And what happens with all those who come? They're never cast out. I will raise him up on that last day. We see all five, all five points of Calvinism are right there. Right in one little, one little statement. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, uh, and sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And down in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Couldn't be any more clear. He repeats over and over and over again these, these truths. And so, so someone might point out that, that what we read in verse 64 is this evidence that Jesus is looking at it. Oh, see, he does. He looks into the future and he foresees the faith in the person and he chooses them based on that. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Um, and it's true. He does know, right? He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. But that it, it's clear that that's not the basis on which he is uh, choosing people. That Verse 65 makes that clear to us. This is why I told you no one can come unless it is granted. Uh, D.A. Carson says this in This Is Why, refers to the phenomenon of unbelief. In other words, Jesus knew in advance that he would be rejected by many, and knowing this, he earlier explained in verses 37 and 44, the need for the divine initiative which draws those who the Father has given to the Son and enables them to believe. This advanced explanation prepares true believers themselves to face the attacks of unbelievers without finding their faith threatened. However, much men and women are commanded to believe. However, much men and women are commanded to believe and are held accountable for their unbelief, genuine coming to faith is never finally a matter of autonomous 
human decision. First Thessalonians 5.9, Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In studying Romans 9, 6 through 13, the other night, we saw that God chose Jacob when? Before he was born. Before he was born. How far back does that election actually go? And, and listen for, for, for how this uh, helps to shape our understanding, broaden our understanding of election here. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me its prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So when does this choosing on God's part take place? Before time. Before time. That, so not, not only is it not according to what we've done, but it's before time began. And again, those, those who, who, everyone has to accept these words, but they want to say, yeah, he knew who would choose him, and then that's who he elected. What, what sense does it make to make these statements not based on our works that we see several times in Scripture? What sense does that make if it really is based on our works, it's just based on our future works? Well, it makes no sense at all. Right. It's a nonsensical statement. It, it simply cannot be. Next, common grace. I could have answered it. For you, um, so grace and its its relationship to election. It's someone who really wants to talk to you. Uh, so, uh, what we might think, because we've been talking about the grace that God gives in election, that that's the only people who receive grace from God. That's not true. God shows grace to all that He has made. Um, but to distinguish between the kind of grace shown to everyone and the kind of grace shown to the elect only, that's where this theological term common grace comes from. Uh, we have common grace and we have special grace. Uh, uh, we have electing, saving grace. Uh, and so we've been talking about saving grace uh, up to this point. Uh, now we'll talk some about common grace. And it, this, this is related, and you can kind of hear it, it's related to when we talk about revelation, right? And we have general revelation, everybody sees, everybody knows, and we have special revelation, that which comes um, through Christ and through the Word. Uh, and so this is a, a similar thing. Just for a second. Yeah. Uh, that was Avery and uh, him and Jonas, because Jonas and him have been texting about like the sound on the thing and whatnot. Lord, we just 
Do what you need to do, Matt. I don't know if Okay. So, common grace. And this is one of those moments where we're thankful for common grace, right? Um, that God gives common grace to, uh, to uh, doctors, <laughs> to nurses, um, to, uh, to the world. Uh, and it, it hits home in these moments where, where it's much needed. So we, we've been talking about God upholding, in the last lesson, upholding all things by his power. The grass grows because God wills it to grow. God's providence is meticulous. His sovereignty is meticulous. Every human breath is sustained by God. Life and existence itself are the most fundamental of common graces. Matthew chapter 5 Verses 43 through 45. And listen here. Does God love his enemies? And if so, how does he? You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So, does God love his enemies? Yeah. He does, but what kind of love is it? Probably like to love your cat. <laughs> I mean... I like to love your... Yeah, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this kind of love, yeah. So, so there, there is a distinction here, um, and we need to be careful because people talk in such loose terms. And Jesus says, "Love your enemy, so that you may be sons of your Father," which implies God loves His enemies. But if we're going to have the word "love" only mean treats them like children, a fatherly love, well, then no, no, He doesn't. 
Um, but it's not true. And I sometimes hear this. You'll see people of people doing like street evangelism and they'll say to people, God loves you. And then people get on the comments and are like, why are you telling them God loves them? God doesn't love the unelect. God doesn't, God doesn't love the rebellious, the enemy. God hates them. And we can find those statements in scripture too. Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated this kind of love that God's talking, that we're talking about here in, in Matthew that Jesus is talking about. God loved Esau with that kind of love too. God provided for him. He kept giving him breath. He kept eating. He kept living. And so we just need to be clear about what our, wor what our words mean and how we're using them. Um, so God does love his enemies in that sense. He absolutely does. Is this the original word in this context? Oh, I don't, I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know which one it is here. Um, and yeah, I mean, that could, sometimes I think with those distinctions in the Greek words, there certainly are differences, but we also tend to elevate the differences between those words sometimes unnecessarily. But it may be, it may be that it's a, it's a, uh, certainly it's a intentional word choice, whatever the word for love being used here is, but. Yeah, so there is a kind of love that God has, um, even for the, the enemy, even for the un, un, unbeliever. Um, but it is not the same kind of love that God has for his own. Um, okay, let's, let me assign a couple passages here. Acts 14, 15 through 17. Got it. Uh, Psalm 145, 9 and 10. And then I'm going to have you read 14 through 17 eventually too. But, uh, and then Romans 1, 18 through 21. Okay. All right. So Acts, um, looking for evidences of common grace here. Acts 14, 15 through 17. Go ahead. Who's ever got it? That's great. Thank you. What translation are you using, Darth Vader? CSB. CSB. All right. All right. Very Southern Baptist of you. Um, Thank you. Psalm 145, 9 and 10. Now, uh, give us 14 through 17, too. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Okay, so, so God has shown mercy to mankind. Um, he did not completely do away with humanity um, after the sin of Adam. He did not completely do away with humanity in the days of the wickedness of Noah and the flood. Um, 
he has left witnesses of his character that can be seen by all. He has given a conscience to every person. Um, all of this is common grace. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 21. And give us verse 32 also, Josh. 32? Yep. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay. So we see these evidences of God's common grace um, here that, that every person knows. Every person knows there's a God to whom they are accountable. Everyone knows that there's a God who made all things. They suppress these truths in unrighteousness. But literally, everyone knows. The most hardened atheist in the world knows. Uh, knows that there is a God. So Christians do not believe in atheists. We don't believe they exist. We don't believe them when they say they don't, they don't believe God. Now, they might believe themselves in that moment, but they have got moments. It doesn't matter who they are. Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous atheists, he died of cancer a number of years ago. Shortly before, when cancer was taking hold of his body, he made a public statement. Now, if in my last days I start to claim there's a God, don't believe me, it's just the cancer. Why would you, make, why would you ever make that statement? Well, I'll tell you why, because you know, because yeah. you know that there is. And he was afraid that he would. Um, we don't have to do that like in my life. If somehow before my death, I start to say unicorns are real. And one's here in this room with me. Like, I'm not concerned about that. Uh, and so everyone knows this is God's common grace. This undeniable reality of God. And they know they're guilty. And they know they're guilty. That, too, is God's common grace. God is not under any obligation to reveal himself to man or to show man his guilt. Uh, yeah, Josh. That kind of reminds me of, uh, I want to say C.S. Lewis, or could have told me, one of them said there are no... You, okay. Who said there are no atheists in the foxhole. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So that is God's common grace. On top of that, every good action that the unbeliever does is common grace. God is restraining evil uh, in that moment. Um, God, God restrains the evil that, that we would be capable of. Um, he restrains evil. One of the ways he does it is through human governments. Um, that's what Romans 13 tells us, that, that, that God's... That, that God's law first and then the human governments he has put in place restrain evil. And so that's one of the dumb things you hear people say all the time. Even Christians say, you can't legislate morality. Every time I hear a, a pastor say that, I think, you do not know what you're talking about. We only legislate morality. 
the speed limit sign you pass on your way home today is a legislation of morality. The question is, by what standard will we be legislating morality? Whose morality? It's not whether, but which. We will legislate morality. Whose morality are we legislating? Well, that's God's common grace through governments. Scripture is clear still, though, that the so-called good actions of unbelievers are still sin. It's not as though they're doing things that are, are, are righteously good. Um, because, why? Because they're not motivated by faith. Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, the, the non-believer donates millions of dollars to charity and what have they done? They did a good thing for humanity, and they sinned in doing it. It's a sin. Everything that they do, because it's not motivated by faith. Okay, why does God show... And if it was a believer, it would be dirty rags. What's that? And if it was a believer donating, it would be as dirty rags. Right. If, yeah. It, it, in terms of merit, in terms of earning anything, yeah. Yep. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I will not. <laughs> um, what, why does God show common grace to all mankind? Let me, let me dole out some passages here again. Uh, Romans 2.4. I can do that one. I'm right on it. Wonderful. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.1-4. All right. 2 Peter 3.9. Ezekiel 33, 10 and 11. Okay, so we're looking at God's stance towards unbelievers. How, how it is that God shows common grace to mankind. Romans 2, 4? Yep. Okay. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Yeah. Okay, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some Okay. And Ezekiel 33, 10 through 11. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Okay. So... What do we see in these passages about God's disposition towards the unbeliever? How much pleasure does he take in the death of the wicked? None. Um, how many people does he desire to be saved? Okay, so how does that work? 
How does that work with, with uh, election? I desire all to be saved. I'm going to choose Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, he has no delight in the death of the wicked. Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, to kill you publicly. Uh, and I'm glorified in that. Uh, how, how does that work? It's a good question. One we should consider together. Uh, any parents in the room that have ever, don't admit it on camera, spanked a child? Many a time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> it works best for the uh, example if it's your own. Um, I don't know any godly parent that wishes pain for their children. We all desire not pain for our children. We will be the direct cause of their pain at times though, because why? Your kid's about to run onto the street. You take them and you whack them on the butt and you say, you don't come close to that street. Why did you just override your desire for them not to have pain? Because something more important was going on. Your desire for them not to have pain is not the only thing in the whole world. There are far greater desires, ones that are so far greater that you will happily cause them pain because you know, um, you know that it will accomplish something good. And, and, uh, and so... We look at these supposed contradictions in Scripture, uh, and and here are here are a few of them. Um, God commands Pharaoh to let his people go in Exodus five one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: Let my people go, that they may hold fast to me in the wilderness." Okay, clear command. Again, we see God's will of command and God's will of decree. Um, God's will of, of command is um, Pharaoh, let my people go. But then what does God do? Pharaoh, here's my command to you, let my people go. Here's my desire, let my people go. But God then hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh won't let them go. Exodus 4 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then God commands us to love all people. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall take no vengeance and bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then God causes hatred in people's hearts. Psalm 105, 25. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Isaiah 19, 21. I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. They will fight each against another, each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. God commands that the Sabbath be remembered in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. 
And then in Lamentations 2.6, God causes people to forget the Sabbath. He laid waste his booth like a garden, laid ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. Then we see that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as we read in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way. For why will you die, O house of Israel? But God says he will delight in destroying Israel when they do evil. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 63. As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you should be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. We read, God desires all people to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But he doesn't choose to save all people. Mark chapter 4, verse 11. He said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Well, why did Jesus speak in parables? We often get this answer because he was a master teacher. And so we use parables and stories to teach because... That's the best way to do it. Not, not verse by verse exposition like these weird stodgy people who don't care about the Holy Spirit, but as a master teacher, he told stories. Jesus' answer for why do you use parables is so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. I speak in parables so that those people over there will never be able to understand me and repent and be saved. God commands us not to murder, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. And then God predestines the crucifixion of Christ, which could not happen apart from murder, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the pagans of, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And in fact, Isaiah... 53.10 says, God was the one. God was the one who ultimately put his son to death. It was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And so we know at the outset, when we see these things, we know that God's word does not contradict itself. So there must be another explanation for it. We come to these seeming contradictions humbly and we say where there is lack of understanding here, the Bible's not at fault. <laughs> My understanding is at fault. And we need to take both things seriously though. I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I will delight greatly in killing you. Uh, we have to take both statements. But God, God, whatever God is, he is to the full. Uh, and so the best way it seems to, to make sense of some of these things is to, to understand the difference between God's moral will and God's sovereign will, um, God's will of command, his moral will is revealed to us in scripture. We have clear instructions in scripture. 
what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. We don't have to guess. We're not left guessing what God's moral will is. We don't have to ask God to reveal to us his moral will. He has made it clear. All we have to do is open up our Bibles and we will know the revealed will of, of God. So in each of those examples we read before, that, that top, that top uh, passage that we read is this revealed moral will of God, revealed in Scripture. Uh, and so they were clear commands from God, commands that God wants us to obey. But then we come to God's sovereign will or his will of decree. Uh, and that's what, whatever it is that God actually brings to pass. Um, it is that which God has, has willed, has determined, has ordained from uh, all of eternity. And so if, if something happens, we can be assured that it was God's sovereign will for that to happen. Uh, because we know that God sovereignly brings about all things. We saw that uh, Thursday night. Uh, and so that's what the second set of verses is, is illustrating. The second half of each of those things is God's sovereign will, that which he brought to pass. Um, and we can see that that might be different than God's moral will. Uh, the cross, the greatest sin ever perpetrated by mankind. And who planned it? God planned it. Um, th th that plan could not have been carried through without a violation of God's moral law, without a violation of God's moral will. Uh, and we, we look at that example and we go, we get it because what, what was accomplished? Well, salvation for all who would believe, for all of God's people was accomplished that. And so that's one where we can see right on its face God's faithfulness. God's good. Okay, God's good. Even in, the, even in the greatest evil perpetrated. And this really is the answer to, what is that Christian movie they made a few years ago that was really popular? Some freshman in college challenges his professor. Yeah. And the big thing after two hours is free will. And the atheist professor's like, oh, I believe. And then maybe like gets hit by a car or something. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, no, he gets hit yeah. by a car and then he believes. Okay. But, uh, Free will is not the answer to the problem of evil, and that's why atheists are so unsatisfied with it, because free will is the answer we've been giving all along. Uh, what is the answer to the problem of evil? It is that our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases, and whatever he does is good, whether we see it or not. The answer to the problem of evil is the cross of Christ. The greatest evil, and in all the ways we think it's not the greatest evil, it just reveals how shallow our view of what it means for the second person of the triune Godhead to take on flesh and then be murdered by his own creatures. To, to use the strength and the muscles he gave them. To, to breathe in deep into the lungs he created, the oxygen that he made to curse him. To, to put him to a shameful cross. In all the ways we think there's something worse than that out there, it shows that we have no comprehension um, of just how, how grave a sin that was, how, how grave a rebellion that was. And we look at that and we see a clear statement in Scripture that God planned it and we know that it was for our good. And that, that's the answer that Christians have. 
That, that's the answer to the problem of evil. Now, the unbeliever doesn't care about that. But the genuine person, that problem of evil is, is a problem that we're all going to be confronted with or have been confronted with at some point in our lives where something terrible happens and we go, where is God in this? I, I remember, um, I'll never forget this, this class. I was teaching at Bethel and at Bethel, I always do, I take attendance by, they have to write a question down. And if they don't write a question down, then they don't, they're not counted as present. So everybody has to do it. And then I'll just answer those questions on the fly in class. I'll, I'll just deal with them. And a lady wrote, tonight is the third anniversary of my 11-year-old daughter's death. Where was God? Now, you read that question in front of a classroom of people and that grieving mother, and that'll put a little pressure on you. <laughs> and I took her, I took her to, um, I took her to, took her to school. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I took her to Acts 4. That was I took the class to Acts 4 in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of sinful men. God raised him up. And, and I said, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's the greatest evil. It's greater than the, than the loss of a child. It's greater than the, 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 the most heinous murder. It's, it, this is the pinnacle, and God was at work for good, and I don't know. I don't know why your daughter died, but I know there, there was purpose in it because I know what God's revealed in his word. And she's weeping the whole time, and I'm thinking, I could be in trouble here because that's not the answer Bethel College is going to give right. at all. And I didn't know how it was being received. Um, I just knew nobody else at Bethel is going to give her this answer and she said, nobody's ever answered that question for me before. <laughs> There's, for, for God's people, there is peace in this truth. Um, that, that God is at work for good. God is good in all of this, in, in his sovereign will. He is working for good. Uh, so, uh, all for his glory then. Uh, the underlying chief end for which God is doing these things is for his glory. Wrapped up in that is our eternal joy. This is the best thing in the whole world. Uh, that God is ultimately concerned with his own glory, as we said the other night, because he is the most glorious thing in all the universe. Um, it's right that he is. But then he chose to take you and wrap you up in that. So now you're wrapped up in the thing that he's most concerned with. That's pretty good. Um, Ephesians 1. Open to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, we're going to start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. You hear that phrase repeated throughout that statement. God chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He's given us the, the immeasurable riches of salvation. And then we see repeated to the praise of his glory. Verse 6. To the praise of his glory. Verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Verse 14. Flip over a page to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Remember Ephesians 2, the first three verses are painting a bleak, bleak picture of humanity and of us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ. Why does Paul tell us God did all this for us? Why did he elect us? Why did he raise us from the dead? It's right there in verse 7, isn't it? So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement. And we talked about that. Maybe it was Tuesday night. I don't know anymore. But what an incredible statement. It will take infinite coming ages to show us this immeasurable grace. Forever. A billion years from now. We'll still be astounded. The ultimate aim of God is clearly present, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, verse 8 through 12. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare, before they, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praises from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea... And all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the deserts and the cities lift up their voice. The villages of Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let the shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praises in the coastlands. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver, 
I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 60, 21. Your people shall be shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. This full orb picture of God's creation of a people, God's uh, bringing them to, to himself in salvation. God's not completely destroying them in his wrath. All of these things, God continues to say, it's for my sake. It's for the sake of my glory. The death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus is for the glory of God. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And after de de describing and defending God's sovereign plan of redemption through history in Romans 9 through 11, Paul concludes with this. And let me just say, when we consider this topic, uh, the topic of election. And again, like I said the other night, it gets it gets burdensome to see the same tired, old, thoroughly debunked accusations come against these things. The same old arguments, the same old thing. And it leads us to this thing where, where all of a sudden we're reading these truths and studying these truths as if they're just as if they're just tools in a bag that we argue from. That was not Paul's take on these things. It should not be our take on these things. What does Paul do? After 11 full chapters of the richest theology ever put down on paper. We're talking about ivory tower, mountaintop, glorious, rich doctrine. Paul comes to this point where he cannot keep it in anymore in Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. What an appropriate response to these truths. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Many have tried. Many have tried to say this is how it should have been done. Who, who could counsel God? All right. We are going to, I think I figured it. Yeah. On to lesson seven, which would have been Matt, but he has abandoned us. I got it. He ran away. Okay, I'm uh, So let me get, let me run into the kitchen and grab my drink so my throat doesn't. Uh... Take a moment to stretch.
it. So we're I, gonna I, run into things where I'm like, not too concerned. What do they mean by this? <laughs> so it'd be like sitting through one of your regular sermons. Yeah, yeah. What do you mean? Just a confused man standing before you. Um, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. The other glory when you're doing something like this is that you come to things where you go, boy, I don't agree with that. Uh, so that's always a winner. We'll see if we run into anything like that here. I don't think we will on this one. All right, we're going to dive in, even though not everyone's back in the room, just for time's sake. Um, okay, lesson seven. Um, we've all heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt. Um, the reason that you haven't for real. Yes, you have. You've never heard familiarity breeds contempt. Just explain it for the other people who have never heard it. Yeah. Okay. Familiarity breeds. It's the, it's the, the statement of like. Um, the, the things that you are very, very well acquainted for, you tend to lose all sense of respect for those things. Or like you have some person you really, really like, but then you go on vacation for two weeks and stay in a small place with them. And you're like, well, they're the worst. Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, why is that true? It's true because of sin. It's true because we are fallen creatures. Uh, Kyle Kilby wrote this, the fall of man can hardly be more forcefully felt than simply in noting that we all do with fresh snowfall or the first buds of spring. On Monday, they fill us with delight and meaning on Tuesday, we ignore them. No amount of shouting to us that this is all wrong changes the fact for very long. Only some aesthetic power, which is akin to God's own creativity, has the capability for renewal, for giving us the power to see. So hopefully we will, as we study these things, God will give us eyes to see by his spirit. Uh, some definitions. Um, angel, created spiritual being with moral judgment, high intelligence, without a physical body, most of the time. Deism. It's the view that basically God created everything and then stepped back. Just let it all play out. Uh, demons, evil angels who sinned against God, continually work evil in the world. Sometimes they appear as aliens. Bigfoot. I'm not ready to concede the Loch Ness Monster just yet. Dualism. The idea that both God and the material universe have eternally existed side by side. It's two ultimate forces in the universe. Uh, it implies that there is an eternal conflict between God and the evil aspect of the material universe. So, material bad, spiritual good. Ex nihilo, it's a Latin phrase, means out of nothing. It's talking about God's creation. God created out of nothing. He did not use existing materials. Macro evolution is, is essentially what we think about when we think about evolution. Um, it's, it's that, you know, stardust turned into primordial ooze, which eventually uh, turned into Oprah. You did it, God. <laughs> uh, materialism, 
that's just the, the material view. That what exists is the material world. Uh, Microevolution, the view that small developments occur within one species without creating a new species. Pantheism, the idea that the whole universe is God, or at least part of God. Theistic evolution, the theory that God used the process of evolution to bring about all the life forms that are on earth, which is no better than good old-fashioned evolution. Okay, so um, creation out of nothing. After discussing the doctrines of scripture, the doctrines of God, the doctrine of election, we now come to creation. Most fundamental verse in this regard, of course, is the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, there's a lot of theology right there. Right there in that very first verse. God created the heavens and the earth. They, they are not the product of chance. They are not the result of many gods. Creation is not eternal. Creation has a starting point. Um, God created them. Creation is distinct from God. God is over creation. Not co-equal. Um, God is not subservient to the, the patterns of creation. God is over creation. Other verses that reinforce this same thing from the New Testament, Acts 4, verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of the things that are visible. John 1 verses 1 through 3 In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. So God made everything. God made everything and he made it out of what? Not a, Not a thing. That's right. In fact, God created... <laughs> Thank you, Chuck, for keeping him in check. The fact that God created the world means what about God's relationship to the world? He gets to do whatever he wants to do, right? He has total claim over it. He owns the world, everything in it. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth belongs to him. All the stuff and those who dwell therein. All belong to God, all at his disposal to do what he wants. He is not dependent on the world for anything. Creation meets none of his needs because God has no needs. God has no deficiency. On Tuesday night, we were Matt was reading one of the definitions talking about the emotion of God. And, and God is, 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 God does have emotion, but God's emotions are fixed things. He, his, his wrath is fixed on evil. His delight is fixed in his son and, and in righteousness. And um, I made the joke, well, you should scratch that out and, and teach a, a, a seity there or a saity. You can say it either way. Whichever way you say it, say it confidently and people assume that's the way. 
um, the aseity of God is that God is um, from within himself. Uh, in other words, he's not dependent on anything else outside of him. Um, and it, it's tied closely to the immutability of God, the unchangingness of God. Um, that, that God is from himself. Um, and that's what we see here in creation. God created all things and God's not dependent on anything. So that, you see the aseity of God has, has wide ranging implications. It has implications about God's emotional life, that God is not responsive to things uh, in that way. He does not ex exhibit emotions the way we do. He, he's not flighty. It also means he's not dependent on us for our salvation, as we just studied in election. He's not dependent on us for anything. There's no lack in God. He does not need someone to love. Because he is from within himself. And so it's, it's an, important, um, an important attribute of God for us to understand. Acts 17. We don't have time for those kind of rabbit trails today. I understand that. I'm going to try to do better. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives... To all mankind, life and breath and everything. So how do we understand commands to serve God um, in Scripture? Um, you know, Luke, Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then we just read, God's not served by human hands. How do we make sense of those two statements? We don't. We brush over it. We brush it under the rug and we move on. We hope no one brings it up. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> um, I think there's a different meaning of the word serve in those two, two contexts. Well, at least in different capacities, maybe? But the reality that God himself is not, like, actually helped or right, yeah. made more of or uh, benefited in some way by us, but the command to us is still to serve um, him and give like, our life and uh, make everything that we do uh, just, for just his glory. Serve. But it doesn't, like, every time that we say, like, it's kind of to the same meaning of, like, when we glorify him, we're not adding to his glory. Doing, yeah, doing the things that we are called to do, mm -hmm. um, commanded to do. Yeah. Right. To serve him it means to be subservient to him. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good. That's great. Yeah, and, and so it's it's just different senses of, of the word. There's a right way to serve God. There's a wrong way to serve God. The wrong way is God needs me. I'm fulfilling some lack in him. Uh, you know, he, good thing he's got me on his team. The right way is um, we serve God out of obedience and out of worship um, because it's what we're made for. Um, we serve him in total dependence on him, knowing that God works through means. Right? If we're going to get up and, and preach a sermon, we better step into the pulpit knowing God works through means. Right? The means of preaching. 
what we are doing is not a, a fruitless exercise here. Um, God works through the means of preaching uh, and God intends to, God intends to use us uh, to that end. And it's essential that we do it. We must do it. Uh, how will they hear unless there is a preacher? Um, so, so it's essential that we do it, but we do it in complete dependence on God. Somebody asked Spurgeon once, what, what's going through your mind before you step into the pulpit? And he said, the whole time as he is stepping, uh, walking into the pulpit, and before he takes the pulpit, he's just praying over and over, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we serve God in complete dependence on him. We, we couldn't do anything apart from him. So we are not doing so in a way that, that implies that we're meeting some need of, of his. It's essential that we do it. It's essential that we serve him, but not because we are essential. Right. And if he didn't, right, if we were unfaithful, what would he do? He would still call someone else. He would call someone else yeah. and we would be at loss. And, and so again, it comes back to this. God being at work for all things for our good, for our joy. It's for our good and joy that we serve him. What an honor, what a blessing it is. What, what an honor it is to be used by God to clean the toilets of the church to serve his people. What, what an honor it is uh, to, to be used by God in any capacity whatsoever. Uh, Psalm 50, verses 9 through 15 here in these words, what God wants from us, what God doesn't want from us. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 15. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Or do I, do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What does God not want from us? What does God want from us? He doesn't want food, right? He wants us to sacrifice, you know, in, 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 you know, he commanded the people of Israel to sacrifice things like bulls. But not because he had to eat. He want right. He wanted them to do that. Because of, like, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Right. So that I can have dinner. Right. Right. So, again, we, we don't offer to God, we, we don't offer to God our service or anything else because... Of some lack in him. Because of some need in him. Which is, is the offerings of the pagans. We're in essence feeding God here. Um, and so we, we do not serve God that way. And even he says. Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the most high. And call on me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. So in all of this, we, God is reminding us that he is the one providing for us. We're not the one providing for him. We've already seen everything God does. He does for his own glory. This includes the act of creation. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things by your will. They existed and were created. This word for, in verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For, we know that the word for, as we're reading scripture, it is always kind of pointing backwards. It's a because. Here's the reason. Here's the grounds. Well, what's the grounds? For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. God created by an act of his free will. So that he would receive glory. Now angels, uh, the natural world and mankind are usually what people are referring to when they say God's creation. But we do not live in a purely material world. Uh, We live in a supernatural world. Um, God has created other spiritual beings, not just mankind and dogs and cats and all the other critters we see. Uh, Two categories then of spiritual beings, angels and demons. Now, people break these into far more categories. These are the two broad categories. Um, There are other heavenly beings that it gets a little more speculative when we try to when we try to uh, bring those classifications in. We're not going to be attempting that here. Um, So uh, Hebrews chapter one. Open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to keep it pretty simple. If you want to get far more in depth, uh, you can go, I can point you to some books and podcasts that will satisfy all your nerd tendencies and surely give you some unhelpful information along the way. Anywho. <laughs> All right, Hebrews chapter 1. Somebody read verses 3 through 6. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Okay, what distinguishes Jesus from the angels here? As we start looking in Hebrews 1. Okay, simply put, his name is far greater than theirs. They're commanded to worship him. Um, somebody else pick up, or it doesn't have to be somebody else, but whatever. Uh, verses 7 through 12. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, 
Lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Okay. What's the distinguishment between Jesus and the angels here? They're, they're servants, right? They're... Um, he makes the angels his winds, his ministers, a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Um, okay, now verses 13 through 14. I can wish one. <laughs> Discord in the family. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay. What's the, what's the distinguishes Jesus from the angels here? Jesus is given what? All, all dominion, all authority. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The angels are ministering servants. They are not given all dominion over all things. Jesus is given all dominion over all things. Uh, now, the counterpart to angels are demons, um, evil spirits who attempt to thwart God's plans, to slander his name, to harm the saints. The chief demon is Satan, called the devil, Beelzebub, the evil one, old scratch, old slewfoot. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else. Satan has been opposing God since the beginning of human history. We got, uh, do I have this quote from, from John Piper here? There was, something, there was some wrong thinking about the angels in these churches to whom the letter of Hebrews was addressed. Specifically as they related to Jesus, it may have been a lot like Jehovah's Witnesses' heirs of making great angel, a great angel out of Jesus Christ. The answer of this writer is, Jesus is the Son of God in a way no angel ever was. Jesus is not an angel. He is worshipped by angels. Jesus is not an angel. He is God. Jesus is not an angel. He is the eternal creator of all things. He is seated on the throne as king, and the angels are dispatched to do the king's bidding. Once you see the angels in their proper place, their role is a magnificent one. They have a role toward Christ, and they have a role toward the people of Christ. Toward Christ, verse 6 says that their role is to worship. Toward the people of Christ, verse 14 says that their role is to serve and help us reach salvation, which means if you're willing to let me use the familiar language, God has created angels that his son might be glorified and his people might be satisfied. I want you to leave this morning with this truth ringing in your heart. Christ Jesus is infinitely superior to the angels. They were created not to compete with Christ, but to worship Christ and honor him. The chief way that they do that on earth is by serving us so that we hold fast to Christ and trust him and love him and treasure him and finally reach him in the fullness of salvation. So angels were created for Christ's everlasting glory and for our everlasting joy, which as you well know are not contradictory aims, but Christ is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So here's what I've discovered. Um, on this iPad, it took my text box from that quote and moved it down onto the next page 
when we should have read it while we were still talking about angels and not demons. Yes, I figured. And now we return to the topic of demons. <laughs> so again, I shouldn't have even read it. I should have been like, you got it, read it sometime. Thanks a lot, Piper. This man. Uh, okay. Uh, let's assign some passages. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Revelation 12, 9. Revelation 20, 2 through 3. Got it. John 8, 44. First John 3, 8. Got it. Okay. All right, let's do it. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Listening here to, to the identification of... Uh, well, we're going to be introduced to this this serpent here in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, <coughs> she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, thank you. Now these other these New Testament passages are going to shed some light on this serpent as we go. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Thank you. Revelation 22 through 3. <clears throat> and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Okay, John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, so the serpent is who? Satan and what is his, what's his work? What do, what do we read in John here in John eight just there? Liar. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He's the father of lies. First uh, John three eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay. So he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's the father of lies, he is a sinner, he has been sinning from the beginning. Why did Christmas happen? The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the serpent, of the devil. Uh, Satan has been active throughout history, still active today, prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us. Uh, Luke 8.12 Jesus is giving the, the parable of the soils. He says, the ones along the path are the ones who have heard, and then the devil comes 
takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who's that? Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, another name for Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we see further the work of, of Satan. Keep as many people as possible in a state of unbelief. Um, taking the word away from people's hearts, we see in that parable. Blinding them to the gospel. If Satan is successful in this, then people will remain in their sins. They will remain in their condemnation. Um, they will do, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, they will do his bidding. They will follow after him. Uh, it's clear then that demons assist Satan, the prince of demons, in his work of deception, oppression, affliction, and temptation. First Timothy, let me just assign these. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3. 1 John 4, 1. Got it. Matthew 8, 16. Got it. Okay, let's do it. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God... You're good. That's good. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. So, devote themselves to deceitful spirits, to the teaching of demons. Uh, and what, what does he point to? Forbidding marriage. Take note, Roman Catholic Church. Doctrine of demons, right? Forbidding the eating of certain foods. Have that barbecue. <laughs> Love that barbecue. First John 4, 1 John 4.1 uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay. Okay. False prophets are being led by what? Demons. Demons. False spirits. Matthew 6, verse 8. Uh, Matthew 8, verse 16. <clears throat> that evening and he Bless cast you. out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Okay. Many who were oppressed by demons were caught to him and uh, brought to him, and we even see um you know some some physical ailments are caused by um by this. Now we don't draw from this that all sicknesses are demons, as two different categories of people, those oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits. And he healed those who were sick. Demons get cast out. Sick people get healed. Right? Right. 
Uh, so it's it's important to to study Satan and demonic forces in systematic theology. Number one, it's part of the whole counsel of God's word. We should not be ashamed of it. We should not be, you know, the world looks at that. You believe in angels and demons and they're like, you're dumb. And we're like, you've got like 35 shows of ghost hunters. Yeah. Why is this dumb? What are you talking about? By the way, they're dealing with the demons. So we're fine. Um, it's part of God's, God's word, but we don't want to be ignorant. We're not to be ignorant of Satan and his designs and outwitted by him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We're we commanded to resist the devil. We're commanded to stand against his schemes. And so we need to know, we need to know um, who it is and what his schemes are. And scripture asserts that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19. 1 John 3, 8 says, We know that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus uh, and that Jesus, uh, Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Deliver all those who through fear of death were being subject to lifelong slavery. We know that one day Jesus will ultimately conquer sin and death and the devil. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison, come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever. Here, here's this great great thing we have this enemy right as um luther's luther's great hymn of the reformation a mighty fortress is, a, is our god um uh, still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal and we see this like we have this enemy who is stronger than us he is craftier than us he does not have an equal here on earth. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We, we could never hope to stand on him. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask, who is he? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And then he goes on. This world filled with devils threatens to undo us. We will not fear for God has willed us truth to triumph through us and then he makes this great statement about this powerful enemy the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for his doom is sure one little word shall fell him here's this fierce powerful enemy we can never stand against one word will fell him and people have speculated for ages what's the word what's the word and luther answered it luther answered it they asked luther what's the word and luther said the word is this liar that's all he's got. He's a liar. And we just tell him to his face that he's a liar. In the book of Revelation, we see this. We see these, 
these epic, like, earth-shattering moments of armies amassing and the great war is about to happen. And we, in pop culture, we talk a lot about themes from Revelation, the Battle of Armageddon and this and that. It's just going to be what happens every time. In the entire book of Revelation, every time there's about to be this massive battle, God speaks and it's over. There's never a fight in the whole book. It's just God speaks, done. So here it is, big bad Satan and all his minions, a mass for battle. He gathers the nations in rebellion. Nothing. They march up over the broad plain, the earth and surrounded camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That's it. It's over. The only weapon, John Piper says, the devil can use to destroy us in death is our sin. Nobody goes to hell because they are oppressed by the devil or even possessed by the devil. Nobody goes to hell because they are harassed by the devil or got shot at by the devil or given hallucinations by the devil. These are all smoke screens to hide the one deadly power in Satan's artillery, namely unforgiven sin. The only reason anybody goes to hell is because of their own sin. And all Satan can do is fight like hell to keep you sinning, to keep you away from the one who forgives sin. Because if your sin is forgiven and the wrath of Almighty God is turned away from you, then the devil is disarmed. The one deadly lethal tactic he has is to accuse you of sin, to keep you sinning and to keep you away from Christ who forgives sin and removes the wrath of God. If your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you and you stand in righteousness before God in Christ Jesus by faith, God is for you and not against you, then the devil is rendered powerless. He cannot destroy you. The, the devil in scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, Satan is called the Satan. The Satan. The accuser. He is, and, and in God's court, we see this in, in, um, in the book of Job. Right? God assembles the heavenly council, and who's there? Satan's there. Right? And it's as Luther said, even the devil's God's devil. God assembles his heavenly council. Satan's there in the courtroom and Satan's acting like prosecuting attorney. And that's sort of the picture we see of, of Satan. And he's this prosecutor. All he has got are accusations and then lies to tell you to tell you you don't have a chance. It's like a bad prosecutor who's telling this person, you've got no chance. Don't even fight. Don't even try. Give up. There's no way you can do this. There's no way out of this. That's what Satan does. That's why Luther says, we just look him in the face and say, liar, and it's over. So, we probably don't have time for this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does, does Satan know what we do about his future? And he's just like disregarding it? Does he, does he lie to himself? Yeah, I think the, the picture of Satan is one of self-deception. Um, he's got all the information we've got plus a lot. Right. Uh, he's not omniscient uh, or anything. Um, but um, yeah, I, the picture of Satan is self-deceived. So, so rebellious that he is, is self-deceived. Um, and, 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 yeah, that's my thought. Is like he's just continuously doing what God has plan for him to do while shaping his fist at God thinking that he's doing his own thing. Well, similar to what we do. So you see this. 
My mind is blanking on the passage right now. You believe that God is one, you do well. And even the demons believe and what? Shudder. Shudder. So there is this self-deception. There is this raging. But his doom is sure. And, and yeah, I think this is, this is my take on it. I think he knows his doom is sure. Um, I, there, there seems to be an indication of raging because time is short. Uh, but so yeah, there's... He's trying to do as much destruction as he can before time runs out. Futilely, yes. <laughs> uh, and there's no... Yeah, and there's no repentance. There's no... Okay, so um, scripture and science. Oh, and we're, we're right near the end of this one. Great. Okay. So often we see this. We see this juxtaposition of like the Bible and then science is over here. And we're constantly wrangling to try and like, I believe in science or I believe in, uh, you know, we don't want to be seen as science deniers. Credibility of scriptures often attacked uh, because the latest scientific findings, well, they tell us that they tell us a very different thing. They no, never, and they never change. The date of the Earth never changes, right? Is the Earth billions of years old? And people do wrestle with. I mean, real Christians wrestle with this, right? Um, and so, how, how how old is the Earth? Because scripture paints a pretty clear picture of how old the earth is, right? Yeah. Uh, but then science says, no, it's billions of years. Um, did man come about from an evolutionary process where Adam and Eve, real people, um, created out of the dust of the ground? Um, these are the, the things that people get at. Um, the heart of the issue, though, the main argument behind the various controversies about whether God created the way Scripture says or whether he didn't, as science demands, we believe. Um, I would say, actually, by science I meant like the people, not actual science. <laughs> actual science doesn't demand that we believe that. There's a couple things. Number one, the Bible is not intended to be a scientific textbook. Okay, we know that. Uh, we know that. When we talked, we talked about inerrancy the other night. Jesus says. The mustard seed, the smallest of seeds. And people go, no, it's not. <laughs> well, actually, um, no, it's not intended to be a science book. Uh, but uh, it speaks with authority. It speaks with absolute truth and clarity. Um, and so Christians, Christians do, do differ. Genuine Christians uh, differ. Um, are we supposed to interpret Genesis 1 figuratively? Or are we supposed to interpret it literally? We need to be charitable with one another in that. We should not, however, pretend that all conclusions are valid. That all conclusions are equal and that the process of arriving at that conclusion is equally valid. If we just pick up our Bible and start reading from left to right, what conclusion would we come to about the earth and about creation? 100 out of 100 people would come to the conclusion that Genesis 1 is reporting history to us. There's only one reason anybody goes, I wonder though, 
if we're not meant to take it literally. There's only one reason, and that is we have another starting point. Yeah. It's like we talked about the other night with Greg Boyd and, and open theism. You've got a prior commitment that you start with. You put those glasses on and you come to scripture and you go, how can I still be a conservative? How can I still be a Bible person? Uh, and that's what you do. Uh, there is no conflict uh, between science and scripture. All of the arguments can be answered. It's just that people don't care. Um, it's, ju it's just that um, it's just that people are desperate to um, to be not seen as backwards or outdated or dumb or crazy or superstitious. We as Christians just hold to um, the clear teaching of Scripture. God made the world. Um, Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea in the heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God made everything and God made it by speaking it to, into existence. Um, and again, a lot of Christians are, are trying to find ways to waver on this. And, and we, can, we can, with charity, we don't have to pronounce anathema on them. You're going to hell because you don't think it was six literal days of creation. However, the hermeneutic that gets them there, the framework that they're working with, eventually is going to undermine more than just how old the earth is. Um, it really is important. And um, we're not going to belabor that because um, I know you use answers in Genesis curriculum here and they do belabor it. So uh, you don't need me to do it here. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's really important. I mean, it's genuinely important. That, that It's one of the things when our kids leave here, our community, and go to their colleges and the smartest people they've ever met, tell them how stupid it is to think that the earth is young. Uh, when people like William Lane Craig, who's one of the most respected Christian apologists, laughs and scoffs at the idea of a young earth. And by the way, he's not great in general. Um, but um, it, it's jarring for people. And it leads to other departures from, from the truth of Scripture. So, okay, we'll move into Lesson 8 as we're continuing on God's creation of the universe and man. Human beings being the pinnacle of this good creation. God created us in his image, categorically different from everything else in creation. One of the reasons that a, a, a literal Adam and Eve are essential. The other reason is that Jesus is the second Adam. And if we lose the first Adam, we lose the second Adam. Uh, so we lose everything, by the way, if we lose that. But um, when God created human beings, he created them male and female. Uh, and this is an important distinction. Paul Jewett, uh, in his book, Man as Male and Female, says, Sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth. Conditions every facet of one's life as a person. The self is always aware of itself as an I. So this I is always aware of itself as 
himself or herself. Our self-knowledge is indissolubly bound up, not simply with our human being, but in our sexual being. Uh, and so uh, we're going to talk about the complementarian position on human sexuality uh, in this lesson. I will just tell you up front that, well, no, I won't. He will, we will also examine what it means to be created in the image of God and how humans are comprised. All right. Definitions. Complementarian. The view that men and women are equal in value before God, but have been given different roles, primary functions in the family and the church. All right, here's what I'll tell you. The complementarian position started off real good. It's not so good these days. Um, there has been much compromise, and it is a compromise due to the heat that is being put on the church and Christians by the world. And the complementarian position has been so softened and so minimized as to almost be meaningless. And so a lot of so-called complementarian churches that have their staff women pastors are still claiming complementarianism for themselves. A lot of the people promoted by the big complementarian organizations who used to take heat for their complementarianism are now having women preach to men uh, and still claiming this title for themselves. So I would say... I would say that. I would say that. Uh, so we're going to use complementarian, but uh, God's got more to say to us uh, about this topic than um, what some circles are, are promoting. Dichotomy, the view that man is made up of two parts, body and soul and spirit. Egalitarian, the view that all functions and roles in the family and church are open to men and women alike. And we would really, if we're going to be consistent, and this is where part of the problem lies, I will try not to get myself in any trouble today, but Matt's not here. He won't even, he may not take the time to listen to this. To think that this is confined to strictly the family and the church is nonsense. It must be, if it's true, true everywhere. It must be. That has major implications for some areas of life that I would speak freely about at Maple Grove Church, but we'll probably not speak as freely about at Eden Worship Center. Uh, but it does. Uh, if it's true anywhere, it's true everywhere. Uh, equality and personhood. The idea that men and women are created equally in God's image, therefore are equally important to God and equally valuable to him. The image of God, the nature of man such that he is like God and represents God. Monism, the view that man is only one element, that his body is the person. Trichotomy, the view that man is made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Okay, so first, created in the image of God. We talked about the creation of the world in the last lesson, the creation of angels and demons, the way that the Bible and science relate. Now we're focused on the creation of man and woman. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? How were man and woman created? So let me assign a couple verses to get us started. Genesis 2, 7. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. 
And then I'm going to have you read another one while you're there. Uh, Genesis 3.20. And Romans 5, 12 through 14. Thank you. All right, let's do it. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And verse 47. first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Okay. Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Romans 5.12 through 14. Oh, I flipped the Acts. You That's monster. I got it. I got it right here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed... For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, I touched on this earlier. Um, why is it essential for Adam and Eve to be real people? First is a simple one. The Bible talks about them that way, right? This is not an allegory. It's not a poem. It is clearly presented as history. Again, we talk about our genres. It's clearly presented as history. Some people claim that the opening verses of Genesis are all a song. Um, there, is, there, is, there is a poetic nature to parts of the beginning of Genesis, uh, but not the whole thing. And then it reiterates uh, the creation of man and woman in a clearly historical fashion. So that is not uh, fitting. Uh, so that one, but again, what do we lose if we lose Adam and Eve? Either it's all true or it's not. Right. We, 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 as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all live. Okay. If Adam's not a real person, if the fall never really happened, the whole gospel breaks down. The whole thing. Notice these extremely important words about God's purpose in creating mankind. And see how this, this passage tells us uh, of the creation in God's image and the dominion of mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. What do we see of the image of God here? Dominion. dominion. That's right. God's representatives of his rule in the earth. Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea or the birds of the heaven, over everything that moves on the earth. Then Habakkuk 2, 14 says this. 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How are those two things related? Creation. It's through this creation mandate, really, isn't it? It's through, it's through dominion. It's through, we, we, are, we are given dominion in the creation mandate. And then in the Great Commission, dominion again. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It, th this is how the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Knowing that mankind is created in the image of God has implications for how we should treat fellow human beings. Somebody read for us Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6. Got it. And somebody James 3 verses 9 and 10. Uh, so, Genesis 9, 5, and 6, as soon as you got it. I'm in the right book this time. I'm excited about that. Okay. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require. And from every man and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Okay, thank you. James 3, 9 and 10. Would that we bless our Lord and Father, and would that we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Okay, so, so we are created by God to glorify God. Uh, our, our life is to align with God's good design. Um, Grudem says this, when we realize that God created us to glorify him, we start to act in ways that fulfill that purpose. Then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord we've never before known. Not all crazy. Not all bad. Not all bad. All right. Created equal. Sorry. Genesis 1, 27 lays the foundation for a biblical understanding of human sexuality. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, men are created what? In the image of God. Women are created what? In the image of God. It should be obvious to us, but we need to say clearly, males and females are created equal in the image of God. Neither sex is inherently better than the other sex. Wow. And it is <laughs> vital to remember that. And uh, all the more so because, um, you know, the general claim is that uh, men are, men are, uh, you know, men have always been considered superior. But I would say in the world we live in right it's now, yeah. that's not the case. That's not our biggest uh, hurdle to get over. Not in America, I mean, yeah. maybe in Saudi Arabia, but... Um, <laughs> Okay, um, Genesis 2, 18 through 23. Would somebody read that for us? Genesis 2, 18 uh, through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, 
there was not a found helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took part, took one of the ribs, and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last, this is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Okay, thank you. So what do we see in this passage about the created purpose of the woman uh, the woman and the man and their relationship to one another the woman was created for what to be a helper fit for him to be a helper fit for him and we should not be embarrassed that the Bible says this. One thing we need to develop in us is the, the notion that Doug Wilson says we should have no problem passages. There's nothing that the Bible says that we're embarrassed about. No problem passages. It is not a problem for us that the Bible says this is the purpose for which God made woman. Um, but what do we see about the status of man and woman before God? Equal. Equal. Absolutely equal. Differing roles is not the same thing as inequality. Uh, and if we insist that it must be, we become Trinitarian heretics, don't we? So, um, now one of the things people do is they'll take Galatians 3, uh, verse 28, and they will say that this is a product of the curse. The roles of men and women, I was taught this in college, this is a product of the curse. It's been done away with in Christ. Uh, let's see if that holds up. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 24 through 29. They use verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're one in Christ Jesus. And they go, that was a product of the fall. Christ has reversed that. Uh, so, Let's read this. Galatians 3, starting in verse 24. We'll go down through verse 29. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Does it hold up to take verse 28 and say what, what Paul is saying there is the curse has been reversed. There are no differences between men and women. No. It does not. <laughs> you are correct. But why doesn't it?
Okay, good. Aiden, what were you guys? Uh, when God assigned the role of men and women, it was before the fall. He always yeah. intended it for it to be separated. So in the fulfillment of revealing Christ, he doesn't change his perfect creation after that. He, I think, would exemplify it even more. And, and what, that's what we see. I think we'll get there. I don't know for sure. Uh, I think we will. Uh, when Paul be, gives instructions for the church, and he said, I do not permit a man to teach, or a woman to teach a man or have authority over a man, what is he grounded in? For man was created first. This is pre fall. Uh, then he gets into the fall, but pre fall. And so, right. Uh, I mean, this is talking about. Now, you couldn't argue from this that there's no difference between men and, and women. You could argue from this that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation. This is all about salvation. There's not one plan for the Jews. There's not one plan for the Gentile. There's not one people of the Jews, one of the Gentile. Not one tree of salvation for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. No, we're all grafted into the one tree. Uh, and so you could make that argument, but... To argue, to argue that what, what's being said here in Galatians is that there's no difference between male and female. And I got myself in trouble um, in a class uh, at Bethel for this because I said, I, I, use, I made the argument for gay marriage using their same line of argumentation. And this lady in the class ripped into me. <laughs> It was it was very sweet. It was an older an older black lady and she was incensed that I was making the argument for gay marriage. I'm like, number one, there's some people in this very classroom that really do. Uh, but but uh, I was like, what I'm showing you is that what you're all claiming this passage says has successfully made the argument for gay marriage. There's no reason to... It is implausible to deny it based on what you're... And then she was like, oh, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Um, so, right, as we've seen, there is, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to worth, no distinctions whatsoever. It doesn't mean there aren't ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles uh, and so the concept then, this biblical concept of headship and submission causes not just discomfort, but anger uh, in some people. When those words are even spoken, if the man's the head of the woman, that must mean you're saying women are inferior to men. I see this and hear this all the time. I taught a class this summer at Bethel. Um, including the um, pastoral epistles. Did you have your back? I don't know why. I honestly don't. I'm openly teaching Reformed theology. I don't understand it. And and like uh, just a fully patriarchal, uh, like I don't get it. Things they hate at Bethel and they just keep like, I developed the class, Acts and the Pauline Epistles, and I think they just don't want to go through the work of having another professor develop the class. <laughs> I've got a couple classes like that. And I think they're just like, let's just have him. He's already done it. <laughs> I don't get it. But I had a lady 
freak out. I'm confident. I am confident she reported me to, to the school. I don't know. She was a, a Methodist preacher, Pastrix. Past and she just about lost her marbles. But I had another Methodist pastor in there, and he said, I've benefited greatly from women pastors and blah, blah, blah. But I, in your lecture, you literally just used scripture. There was none. I didn't catch any opinion in there. That was... So I had two very different Methodist responses uh, to this class this summer. But uh, (laughs) it's a great joy. The the headship thing, like if you follow that line of of subservient, then you have to apply that same thing to the 1 Corinthians passage where the head of the wife is a husband, head of man is Christ, and then the head of Christ is God. So then you have to right. claim that Christ himself is subservient to God right. the Father. Right. That's why I said you become a Trinitarian heretic right. uh, if, you, if you insist that there is a, uh, a difference in, in, in worth and value and dignity in, in this. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 2 and, 2 and 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything. And maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand, this is what you just quoted. Every man, uh, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. So we lose uh, everything. Tom Schreiner says, uh, I think Paul added the headship of God over Christ right after asserting the headship of man over woman. In order to teach that the authority of man over woman does not imply the inferiority of women or the superiority of of men, you've got that whole quote there. I won't, I won't go through it all, but yeah, Schreiner's like, I think that's why he even put that in there, because everyone freaks out. Okay, so equal but different, um, and so this is what has traditionally been the complementarian perspective. Uh, men and women possess equal value and dignity, but are assigned complementary roles in the family and in the church. And in society, and in the world. The Say what? <laughs> well, listen, listen. Look at the the demographic data, and when we look at the world we live in, there's a particular voting block that bears the weight of responsibility. And we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Okay, so the goal of this study uh, is not a full-blown defense or explanation of God's beautiful design for men and women, but to introduce some of the key texts and set forth some of the key conclusions of the complementarian position. Some of this, the way it's written, when we did this like 12 years ago, issues like this, um, issues like uh, you know, the doctrines of grace. Um, there weren't many folks around these parts that believed those things. And now it's a settled matter in the church. It's quite uncontroversial to teach these things in this group. That was not the case the first time through this. Uh, th- this was all pretty new ground for everybody. And so I was needing to sort of gently I just can't, I just can't imagine. prod the thinking. Um, and so, you guys have had to have had like 
hours and hours and hours every time you had a session trying to mm-hmm. I just can't imagine it was a lot it was a lot uh, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot uh, we came to the end of the school of ministry with the majority of the key leaders of the church every single person who had gone through it coming out the other end like I'm definitely a Calvinist and um, you know wholeheartedly complementarian and like we want them all over we did it. it. Took two and a half years, but we got there. But when I started first introducing this stuff, everybody was like, "I don't, I don't like this at all." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right, Ephesians, Ephesians five, twenty-two, and twenty-three. Let's open our Bibles there, so you got it in front of you. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. This this depiction of marriage as imaging something. Marriage is for a purpose. It's not just procreation. It is preaching a message. And that is essential in our understanding. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so Paul says, wives should submit in everything to their husband as the church submits to Christ. What if, what if the husband wants the wife to sin? What do we, what do, we do? Should she still submit to him? No. Because the husband isn't doing his duty any longer. Right, the husband is abdicating his duty. The head of the husband is Christ. So we go over his head. If, uh, if that happens, right? The head of the husband is Christ. So no, the wife ought not, uh, ought not sin uh, because her husband wants her to sin. And that's one of the gifts of, I tell this to couples when I'm doing premarital counseling. Herein is one of the gifts of the church is that you're not on your own if your husband's out of line. Um, there are people that are in authority over him as well. Uh, how is Christ's love for the church shown in this text? In ways that husbands are to emulate. Well, that he gave up his life. And husbands emulate that. He died for the church. He, he has been working to make the church holy. Right. Right. He came to serve. He came to serve. That was, um, it was in a, in a class at, I think it was the same class at Bethel that I, uh, I was just referencing that I made the, the argument about gay marriage. 
in the same class, they were just hammering me on, on uh, that class ended up the last two and a half hours of the last day was the professor and about 25 students just coming at me for two and a half hours. I was a student. I was getting my master's. I was still, I was not the professor. I was a student. And they were just coming after me because the professor outed me as a Calvinist and complementarian. And he hit me with this. Do you consider yourself the head of your household, the head of your wife? I said, I absolutely do. Well, why don't you just tell us what that looks like? I said, okay, I do all the heavy lifting. If, there, if there's something physically heavy that needs lifted, I don't ask her to do it. If there's some spiritual or emotional heavy lifting, I don't ask her to do it. I do it. I take the responsibility. I don't put it on them. I love them and I serve them and I lay my life down for them. And he goes, oh, that's a very subversive take on this. I said, nope, that's the... That's what that scripture says. That's the take. That's the thing. Uh, and so what you find is most people have been so, so bombarded with straw men about this that when you actually tell them like, what it looks like, they're like, hey, honestly, that's pretty, pretty cool. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty, you know. <laughs> so, okay, what in this statement the wife submitting to her husband? Um, she submits as what? As the church submits to Christ. Um, and so, how would you respond to this statement? statement? Telling the wife to submit to her husband as her head is the same thing as male domination and makes a wife a slave. It's, it's because they, they isolate. It's, it's because yeah. that, that piece right there is isolated. So they take the, the sense of like, well, the Christ or the church is obviously of, of not equal value um, or um, like eternal being. Like the, the church is obviously subservient to Christ. And therefore, if the wife is supposed to uh, be subservient to the husband in the same way, then, well, there's your problem. But if they don't read it in context, which is, you know, take that line further, um, we see how Christ is not subservient to to God. Like, you got to keep going up the ladder and seeing the totality of the scripture. When you isolate it, then, yeah, you're like, well, women are just slaves to men. Like, you, well, you're also, you go into it with your worldview. That's true. And so... You're bringing something to the text. We look at um, the head of something Christianity turns that on its head, and that to be the head, like Christ said, I I came to serve. Yeah, yeah. He served. Mm -hmm. You know, he washed his, uh, the disciples' feet. And so when we, you come into this, and you're already looking at it with those lenses of, well, headship, submission, whatever, and you're looking at it from a worldview that says this is what this looks like. Well, that's not what. I've, I've heard it said as a, uh, like, pertaining to this as a uh, debate between a earthly kingdom and then the upside-down kingdom we see in Scripture and, like, the two worldviews battling. And so, like, one side will, to weaken someone, they'll single out one of the two versus what we think of in light of couples who are created in God's image is that they are both created. And so we look at them at the same time. So if we just look at a woman, we see submit yourself to your husband as Christ did the church, and then we don't see the image of husband who is husband, love your wife as Christ 
Mike loved the church and laid him like laid his life down for her. Like that's mm-hmm. if we don't view both of them at the same time, you're just like you're looking at one singling them out just to like prod them, and yeah. that's the whole strategy. But our worldview is this upside down kingdom, and being created in the image of God together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. And and one of the things, and we'll get we'll get into this. Um, We need to understand this is God's good creation. This is how we thrive. This is where we're at our best. We are at our best when both people are doing this and doing it joyfully and doing it worshipfully under the Lord. This is how families um, absolutely thrive. And we best serve the Lord and one another by doing what it is that God designed us for. That's the issue. But men are almost apologetic about being the head, about having authority, about wives submitting to them. And we almost like, we don't, we don't ever want to like. Now look, if a guy has to say to his wife, now you're supposed to submit to my authority, I would s- submit to you that he's already messed it up pretty bad to have had, ever had to say that. I've never had to say to my wife, now you're supposed to submit to my authority. Um... You've already dropped the ball, if that's the case. And it's not going to work out well for you. Um, it, it, you know, it, but, but at the same time, it's actually best for her if she submits to her husband's authority. That's how God created us. And it's good. And it's supposed to be a loving, gentle, sacrificial authority. Uh, and so um, Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the man is given charge of leadership, of headship. Genesis 3, 9 through 11. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you to eat? Okay, so Adam and Eve sin. Who ate the fruit first? Who had the whole conversation with the serpent? Eve. Who does God come looking for? Adam. He takes responsibility. Well, Adam doesn't. But he's responsible. Romans 5, 17 through 19. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now we trust that Adam gets it at this point. But in the garden, he's like, this woman that, by the way, you gave me, I'm like twice removed from the responsibility of this sin. And how is it eternally memorialized? How is it eternally, what's the theological truth? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. In Adam is sin and death. Uh, And so Adam bears the weight of responsibility uh, for this. Women then are charged with submission and support and nurturing. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. 
So that even if some will not obey the word, they may be won without a word or by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, wives, be subject to your own husband. That doesn't mean every man commands every woman. Be subject to your own husbands. We do this in respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothes. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does it mean that the woman is the weaker vessel? Physically, she literally is smaller and weaker. What are we seeing with the insanity of men entering women's sports? We're seeing mediocre men it's awesome. dominate. It's well, it just, it just eventually becomes men's sports. Yeah, that's what it does. Some, some dude shattered a woman's jaw in like lacrosse a couple weeks ago. Like, men are stronger than women. But it's not just that, is it? It's, it's not just that. In general, and we're speaking in general, we're not... You start to talk about these things and people go like, no, so-and-so, the greatest power lifter in the world, she could outlift you. Yeah, yeah I'm fat and 47 with a bad back. What does that prove? <laughs> Who cares? Uh, so we're, people are always wanting to point to the exception. But generally, women are, are more prone to emotion, to, to emotion that, that sort of takes control in the moment. Uh, Paul says... Eve was the one deceived, by the way. Um, so th- there's a lot in this. And I would just say that if that's true, it does. The, the truth of that statement doesn't end in the church or in the home. Now, that's controversial enough, the church and the home. And as Christians, we, we, we don't like the controversy, so we're like, and it ends there. I am all for women Marines. No. Well, you shouldn't be. Very confident. <laughs> there is a very real difference between. The well, standards. they're literally changing the standards. Yes, there's very real standard. And anytime we watch, anytime we watch a cop show, and the woman cop character does the like, I don't know why I'm not getting the respect I deserve. It's so hard for women. I always yell at the TV because you shouldn't be doing this. You were not made for this. You were not made to chase down the bad guys and kung fu fight them. That is not how God designed you. That's what I was not going to say here at Eden. That I would have said at Maple Grove. Have you seen the real videos of women cops trying to subdue a criminal? Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. If I I did this with our homeschool kids. We have a homeschool co-op on Fridays. And I do the first hour with the whole group. And I brought in a big nail and I brought in a hammer. I held up the nail and said, where did the nail come from? Well, did it grow on a tree? 
No, no, it didn't grow on a tree. Somebody had to make it. Okay, somebody made it. They made it. Why is it, why is it sharp on one end and flat on the other end? Well, they did that on purpose so you could drive it in. Then I held up the hammer, did the whole thing. Why the long handle? Why the big, heavy, flat thing? I just kind of walked them through. These two things were designed on purpose for a purpose. Now, do we honor the hammer and the nail if we try to use a nail to drive a hammer into a board? No. <laughs> we don't. If we have... If we've got it, well, I made it up that morning because I was like, how do I talk to these kids about this? That's great. Our catechism question had to do with man and woman. But how, what, what, if we've got a hammer, a blunt instrument, and we've got, or, or, or you've got a thermos, your tough metal thermos that you take to work with you, and it just gets beat up and hammered around, and then you've got your wife's fine china. Yeah. You dishonor the china by treating it like a work thermos. And the work thermos feels totally out of place at a fancy dinner, right? And, and so the, the china is a weaker vessel. And it gets treated with special honor because of that. And that, th this is not a dishonoring, it's an honoring. Why are women not, um, not to be elders and pastors and preachers? Well, it's not because they're dumber than men. They're not. We all know that. It's not because they're incapable. They're not. They are. Um, it comes down to design. It comes down to God's good design in, in creation. And it comes down to, and I, I say this often um, with, with our elders. We'll talk about something and I'll say, you're not free to share this with your wife. The Lord has not asked her to carry the burden he's asked you to carry. Do not talk to her about this. This is a pastoral matter. Um, it, it's a, you're dishonoring your wife. You're harming her. If you, She's going to want you to tell her everything you know. And you're not helping her. You're not doing a good thing. God didn't ask her to carry that burden. Uh, it's, a, it's an honoring. Uh, and so we should celebrate these differences. We should not run from them. We shouldn't be ashamed. When we, when we watch the cop show and the woman laments that she doesn't get the respect that men get, we go, yeah, because everybody knows. Literally everybody knows. You weren't designed for this. Um, and it's good. It's not bad. It's good. Uh, and we, we should not, be, it's God's good design. Um, so, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, soldier on. Creation of the body and soul. I've gotten myself in as much trouble as I can for today. I used it all up on that one. Are there, are there women cops that, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I don't want to know how much trouble I'm in. I'll be thinking about it all the time. Okay. I mean, if they work in the... If they're not on, like, the front line of combat, then glorious. Okay, just to be clear. I won't say anything else. Okay, human beings. <laughs> yeah, oh, poor Carl. All for it. Carry on. All for working in the lab as an analyst. <laughs> I just need a cool it. Mm. All right. Creation of body and soul. Human beings obviously have bodies. There is a material or physical aspect to who we are. But what beyond that? Somebody read Philippians 1, 21 through 24. 
And then somebody, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Okay, and we're thinking about what, what it is that we're being shown about what we're made of. Uh, Philippians 1, 21 through 24. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labors for me, yet which I shall, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Okay, we die... And it's just all over because all we are is physical stuff. Is that what Paul's saying? Yeah. Clearly not. Second Corinthians five one through eight. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And as much as we have putting it on, we <clears throat> well, oh sorry, having putting it on. Will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in his in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed by the clothes, so that what is mortal shall be swallowed up by life. Did I start in verse one? Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry, I got confused again. <laughs> it's okay. Dyslexic, everybody. Now he who prepared us or prepared for us, no, prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight we are of good courage I say and prefer uh, rather to be absent from the body and, and to be home no to be at home with the Lord thank you doesn't it have as soon as it starts it's like an avalanche and you can't, <laughs> you can't get out of it. let me tell you something that's going to encourage your soul I was doing a funeral uh, a couple, maybe two months ago. It was this summer sometime. And I have a funeral Bible that I always use. It's a, I can, you know, it's my beta. It's the Bible I take when I teach at Bethel and I can just throw in the car. And But for funerals, like I've got it earmarked, like exactly where I want to go when I get out to the cemetery and all this stuff. So it's in a funeral home. And apparently I haven't done a funeral in a funeral home for a while. Uh, so my eyes have gotten a lot worse since then because um, I, I got like LASIK surgery and like my, I have to wear reading glasses a lot more. So, and funeral homes are dark. That's the issue. Yeah. So I get up to start the funeral, the sermon. I pick up my Bible and I start in on the first words because I kind of knew them before I was going to read them. And then I look at the page and I cannot read word one. <laughs> I'm moving it. And I'm moving it around, but I had already started reading. And I had to admit to a funeral, full of people, by the way, I knew two of them. It was, the, it was Bill Gayhart's father that died. I knew Bill and Tammy. No one else. And a room full of non-believers. <laughs> and I had to admit, I cannot read even a single word of this. Uh, so, okay. We're off to it. <laughs> Yep, it was good. I wanted to crawl right under the casket and have them wheel me out. Just bury me underneath it. We'll be fine. I, I should have. Andrew's like, why didn't you pull your phone out and use the flashlight? I'm like, you have no idea how your mind is whirling in that moment. Now, I knew I could just launch into the sermon. I was going to be fine. I wasn't going to have any issues. Uh, but And it was. But 
Oh, my lanta. The humiliation. Uh, okay. So, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, secular humanists, materialists, argue that we're nothing more than our physical body. That is not the Christian perspective. Christians believe that a person's soul remains after death. And that doesn't mean, sometimes people talk like this, you're, you're a soul that just happens to have a body right now. It's not really a biblical way of thinking about it either. The Bible does not denigrate the flesh. Um, um, and, and so uh, the Bible presents the resurrection of the body as the final hope for the believer. Uh, and so we, we do not want to, uh, to fall into either error. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 44. Someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but the bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And Paul says in Romans 8, verses 18 through 23, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of as uh, the adoption uh, as sons, the redemption of our body. So, what's at stake in affirming the importance of the body, or, or what do we what do we lose if we disdain our our physical bodies, neglect the resurrection of our bodies? If we if we just say that which is material and fleshly is evil and of no good and no worth, right? The, the, the glory of God is at stake uh, in our physical bodies. The hope of the resurrection is that one day the, the futility that we have been subjected to, all creation has been subjected to because of sin, will be reversed. Uh, and so both aspects are important, the material and the immaterial aspect of our being. Uh, and so some theologians want to make a distinction between our souls and our spirits. For whatever reason, this was a big deal in charismatic circles when I was a kid. It's tied in with the word of faith teaching that they made such a big deal out of it. 
Um, and they would argue that we're comprised of three parts, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Um, but John 12, 27 says, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Save me, Father, from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, 21, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 48, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So what we see in Scripture is essentially these words being used synonymously. Um, John uses those two words, one chapter apart, and uses them in the same way. Um, And so the Bible's not teaching us that um, we're tripartite, body, soul, and spirit. Um, The Bible teaches a bipartite, that, that we are body and soul. Body and spirit. Uh, so, okay, we'll go to lesson nine, but do you guys want to eat lunch? What do you want to do? It's it's 1140. Let's do it. Let's just eat. We're at a good, at a good, 